hey everybody. Thank you for coming to the Art of the Interview. I'm Tony Mann. And tonight our special guest, as you know, is Dave Windor from Monster Magnet. All right, let's hear it. Thank you for everyone at Coney Island Baby for making this possible. And right now I'd like to introduce you to author and filmmaker Stephen Blush. Come on, everybody, let's hear it for Tony Mann, yeah. our co-host, and my right hand. Thank you. So, See you later. Uh, Tony's finishing a book with Big John Hart, who is the head of security for everyone from Kiss to Prince. So he's got some really great stories and an introduction by the one and only Mr. Paul Stanley. So let's hear it for him. See you later. So... What you're about to see is part of a series. Once a month, I'm getting together with some of the great minds of rock culture. I think we could all agree that rock history is something worth preserving, and I know a lot of the backstory and the questions to ask, which is why we call this the art of the interview. So thank you for coming. Um, tonight's guest needs a little introduction. His band, Monster Magnet, in the 90s kind of changed the face of rock music kind of given it this kind of nasty psychedelic edge and frankly this guy has been making edgy groundbreaking music since the 70s in the punk scene so give it up for Mr. Dave Windorf. Let's hear it for Dave Windorf. It's totally bizarre. Yeah. It's totally bizarre, ladies and gentlemen. You know, we could sit here and the two of us could sit here and talk for hours, but I won't pain you through that. Um, so we'll try to keep this as tight as possible. Um, let's just go through your story, Dave. Um, I'm to be able to see you. Hold on. Yes. I'm so used to being on stage, I'm looking at everyone and not looking at the man who's asking the question. Damn it, let's do this right! <laughs> okay, now I think we got it, right? Oh, that's true, yeah, you can always do yes, that, can't exactly. So, um, let's just go back to the beginning, your first musical memories, getting into rock and roll, uh, what you're feeling, maybe it's through your family, you know, to kind of, kind of tell us Yeah, what's going on. rock, everything to me. I mean, you know, I was watching TV and um, reading comic books and everything, but music was the thing that spoke to me. And I think it was the time as well, you know. I was a kid, I was a little kid in the mid-60s and came of basically real consciousness in like 69 or 70. Music had a lot of currency back then, a lot, of, a lot more currency than it has now. It meant something, there were secret messages in it, you know. Whether there was or not, it was a real thing. And uh, so, and it's perfect for a kid who pretty much stays to himself. So I just went to the album record stores looked at the albums, figured out what they were, guessed, brought it home, and it just opened up movies in my head. Like whole do you movies. Remember, like, do you remember those first records, maybe? Yeah. Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, you know, my brother had moved out and left some of his records. So it was uh, The Beatles, you know, stuff like that, Rolling Stone. Um, and they really informed me a lot. But the first records of albums I bought were just... Like King Crimson, uh, Court of the Crimson King, first Black Sabbath album, um, 
Stooges. Uh, you know, I mean, you buy that stuff without talking to anyone. And you just see it in the store and bring home the first Stooges album and put it on by yourself. That's like something else. And I'm like, these guys are on to something. I don't know what it is, but all I know is that I, I immediately stopped reading comic books after that. It was like Spider-Man isn't doing it anymore. What you're also describing there is um, in the 70s, America, the rock and roll in general, kind of takes this dark Sorry. So we kind of have this dark turn that music takes in the early 70s. And I can't yeah. help but think that that had a big influence on you. Because it certainly fits in with the music that you went on to make, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I was aware of the music before, of 60s music. And I think, but in those days when music moved so fast, you know, pop music and rock, which was new. Rock, I mean, rock and roll wasn't new, but rock was new. The kind of uh, the gravitas that it helped, that it held, real or imagined, it really uh, affected me in a way of thinking like, well, you know, things are probably going to move this fast because it's important forever. Music changed every day. So I would look, you know, to look at the Buffalo Springfield or something, which I'd never heard of, and it seemed like ancient history. That was only like two years before. The Beatles seemed like ancient history to me. Yeah, things were moving so fast, for uh, sure. And this new stuff seemed like, you know, so overly, like, not overly important, it really important to me. I was like, well, these guys are like scientists, <laughs> you know? Like, wow, these guys really, I mean, they're making whole movies. The LP was a movie, you know, side one, end of side one, you know, a re-overture, and side two, the whole thing. It really got me, and it was dark. Yeah, it was dark, and uh, it was both dystopian and utopian, which I loved. You know, Black Sabbath was all about like nuclear bombs and heroin addicts, and God. You know, for some, they seemed like the most lapsed Catholics, the most Catholic rock band ever. He's always screaming, "God, help me, help me, God!" You know, he's always, and he's always swinging about his brain, which I love. That my brain, my brain. Uh, it's awesome. So I'm like, you know, this is for me. And then on the utopian side, there was like, yes. And they were singing about what elves and what, whatever, you know, Roger Dean. So it was a great mix. And then throw into that the Stooges and MC5, which were already old hat, but they got a pass because they were great. So I had this like kind of street level, dark, almost violent thing with those guys and then this whole British oh, we're going to make you a big movie and like you know be a lot smarter than you kids are yeah well th those were very intelligent records at the time you know that was that was coming out sure um so this kind of fits in with um soon after that is the mid-70s and the rise of punk and uh I think you know punk has this urban veneer but there's some sort of like a ticking time bomb that the boredom of the suburbs makes and uh, totally you kind of talk about that with the rise of you guys getting into punk rock you know you start this band shrapnel with a bunch of guys who you know you've all kind of gone on to do some interesting things in music and stuff but before that just kind of talk about what it's like to be a punk rocker in central jersey in the <laughs> 70s or whatever you know give us some color on the era yeah all the well, punk happened at the right time because it should have happened at the right time. You know, that glorious day that I'm talking about, 69, 70, when I was a kid, 
and the world was a one big movie, had become a real shitty movie by 74. I mean, I've never seen a scene, well, of course, they all changed, but at that point, I didn't realize that things could get so horrible. And all of a sudden, this great music thing had turned into this, uh, it's kind of the equivalent, you know that show Vinyl? That horrible show? Well, you know, it's almost good that that show is horrible, because it really was horrible in 74. It was horrible. It, it just, and it went down, you know. Kiss came out and everything became like logo eyes and stuff. And nothing against Kiss, but you know what I mean? It was all, it was artificial clothes and spandex and stuff. And I didn't quite get it that I, was, that I wasn't liking it. It was just like early depression. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm not enjoying life anymore. And then punk. Punk came in and it was like, well, this is all the good parts. You know, Ramones came out, well, this is all the good parts and, and none of the bad parts. It really set my head on fire. And in Jersey, for myself and the few other people that were actually that into music and not like drinking from the Leonard Skinner cup, we just automatically just, you know, snuck out of our bedrooms and went to CBGB's. That's where it was all happening. Well, the first, the first part of your, the shrapnel story is actually pretty good. You know, you got the... You're connected to the Ramones, and there's even Legs McNeil for a while, and there's like this whole, the two singles are hot, you know, Combat Love is like a good record, and so kind of talk about like, you know, this is the first independent music traveling, you know, in clubs, you know, these are the first time bands are playing your, your 930 club in Washington, D.C. or yeah. whatever it is, so kind of talk about that. It was, it was insane, because they, it really was kind of a door-to-door -door thing. Up until then, when, in at least my experience, concerts were uh, held in like arenas or theaters, and bars were just bar bands. But now there, it, there were things like, and in the seedy side of town, and they'd let you in, real stuff. And it just, it freaked us out. You know, we were just like, they're everywhere. Those places, they're, they're popping up everywhere. And we were in the band, we were in a band and we just got in the van and did it. You know, it was like a whole, a whole new thing. You know, like you could be, you could be somebody. It, it was kind of e easier to be somebody. You know, At the state of rock in '74, I would never have thought about being in a band in '74. But like, I can't do that. But after seeing the Ramones and seeing these places, and the and with these new rules that were set, these punk rock rules, it was like, yeah, I can do that. And um, I guess everything's going pretty well, and then you sign a major label deal, right? And obviously, that didn't quite work out. I mean, kind of talk about that, because yeah. we did hear from you for about a decade after that. So. Yeah, yeah, I went and worked at the comic book store. Yeah, yeah we're like, I'm out. Uh, yeah, you know, it's one of those, we were probably around too long. One of those things, you know, we were around too long, and what we did had morphed a little bit and probably gone away a little bit too far from our original roots. I think we were young. So, we got a major deal. Didn't work out. Happens every day. Um, I remember walking away from that whole experience going like, well, maybe the next time, maybe I should, you know, if I'm ever going to do this again, maybe I should be the leader of the band. Because at that point, not leader, but maybe I should have, have more time invested. At that point, touring around, I was just happy to have beer. You know, and meet girls. I mean, it was, that was enough. So, um, you kind of resurface around 1990-ish 
Um, there's singles and demos, and what I was really attracted to was you put out this like 32-minute song called Tab. <laughs> yeah. Right, and I'm like, who's putting out a 32-minute song? And I'm like, 1990, when it was all like pre-Nirvana, whatever it was. I don't even remember, but nothing that I was... I just I was immediately drawn to that, but I realized that's really a statement, too. I just want to, you know, just I wanted to piss off the punks who were already old. You know, it's just reverse punk rock. You know, in Red Bank, New Jersey, and Long Branch, New Jersey, it, you know, you go to like 1989, there's a bunch of old punks, like, and not even doing real punk, you know? And <clears throat> there was a big hardcore scene in Asbury, which I never could relate to because it was just, I just could never understand it. I was like, how come nobody's really having fun? Like, why is everyone flying through the air and bashing each other in the head? And where are the girls, for God's sake? Like, wh wh what's going on here? And I was bored of politics, and, and I didn't think politics could make anything. But the one thing I did retain from my days at CB's was a really good knowledge of how to piss people off. So I was like, just go in there and just set up a psychedelic light show, grow your hair really long, and then say, like, drugs, drugs, the Grateful Dead are coming back. You know, that's in sight, though, those guys would be enraged. I mean, enraged. So like, get out of here. And uh, it was really fun. It was really fun. It was a really great time because also, you know, I guess 91-ish is when the first album comes out on Caroline, Spine of God, right? And yeah. it's, um, there's you and there's Caius on the West Coast doing their first album. Yeah, yeah. And there's like this whole kind of, what comes to be known as stoner rock. But, you know, what happens, like, like when in American Hardcore, I talk about this, there's a... Uh, like a zeitgeist that happened. It's like they're just everyone's kind of thinking this. You so, kind of talk about that in terms of um, you know, because there was you know, I knew Soundgarden and Faith No More, and they connected with you guys because everybody's kind of thinking this about rock. Yeah, and they're all punk rockers too. They're all punk rockers who were bored with punk rock, yeah, and that's what happens. And there's something to be said of the speed of thought. Um, uh, um, uh, regulated speed uh, uh, thoughts and scenes came in waves of example and then uh, you thought about it tried it out tried it out again unlike the internet age where everything you get all your stuff at the same time this was stuff that was ruminated on and then tried ruminated on tried but it was all started at the same time from people like you say who were probably just bored with punk rock and starting to take a look back or wherever, whatever they could grab. That was the last time I can remember in my life where there was a natural, uh, that kind of natural uh, scene. Uh, but that was that intelligent because, I mean, the bands we were talking about were thinkers. It wasn't a bunch of Yeah, it wasn't a bunch of dummies. Yeah, it wasn't a bunch of dumbasses and they were really super aware of uh, super, probably hyper aware, that's what happened to Nirvana, almost hyper badly aware of the stereotypes that Rock had already like blown out. So, end of 92-ish is where this whole Nirvana thing happens, and you guys get somehow caught up in it, you're out at a and at 93. Well, just yeah. talk about the music business back then, because it was kind of strange. It was kind of a, yeah. like this venue was called Brownies, and it was kind of like, 
where they were looking for their next indie rock hero and it was so anyway but just it was a very different it was not punk rock and it wasn't like the like the 70s it wasn't like any it was like no new it wasn't it was definitely new and and uh it, it was so weird it was so new and this is when it when things are great when things are so new that that whatever that zeitgeist is the guys in the suits can't understand what it is so they just go out there with a giant net and start picking everybody up so for a short time when the lunatics run the asylum it's a great time they don't know what they're doing that almost net that hasn't happened that haven't hadn't happened since 66 not even with punk rock did that happen this is way bigger than that and everybody looking for their new beatles was gonna some dude in the suit was gonna take some chance on some like like the worst psychedelic band because they just don't know. Yeah, I loved it. I mean, yeah. our A and R guy at A and M, Larry Hamby, he was been around long enough. I mean, he got to start like editing original Star Trek episodes in the nineteen sixties. You know, he edited like William Shatner, and he goes, "I'll be honest with you. I don't know what the hell you're doing, but I want you to do it here. That's the state of the business." He goes, "I don't know what it is. I don't have any idea what you're doing, but I like the feeling and uh, times are good, so." Here's a check. And I was like, I love you. I, I love it. And, and I knew. I wasn't no dummy. I knew that it wasn't going to last long. You know, because as soon, as soon as somebody set some sort of monetary standard or, or let's say, a, a standard that could be monetized from a couple different points, fashion, music, that the whole thing was just going to tighten up like a horrible sphincter. And it did. Like, really quick. And it scared the living shit out of a lot of a lot of really sensitive, nice people in bands who didn't know how to deal with it at all. Well, you were kind of dealing with that as your next records came on the major label too, right? Dopes to Infinity. Super uh, it just Judge. got harder and harder. And, and like yeah. you know, Super Judge. Um, I'm sorry, um, Power Trip. You kind of have your big biggest hit, baby. Right? Yeah. Space Lord, and it's just such a dichotomy because here's like. You know, rock and roll Dave Windorf with all the chicks in the video, and then like every, everything else is like computers and indie rock. You know, and yeah. It's like, well, I was a little yeah. late, but uh, I was trying to figure out a way. You know, I mean, I knew that the axe was coming. You don't have like, you know, if you sign a six-album deal and you're not like selling lots and lots by album number two, album number three is going to be it. <laughs> and I had people from the record company come up to me like, you know, I really like what you're doing, but couldn't it be, you know, somehow less varied? Because it's very bad. I put out this album called Dope Soon Infinity. It was varied. All It's like album I wanted to do forever. And I was like, everybody will like it because it has all different songs on it. No, it doesn't work that way. You know, they just want the same stupid song over and over and over again. And the song that I wrote that I thought was the stupidest song, Negasonic Teenage Warhead, was the song off the record. And I wrote it as a joke, and all of a sudden, we love it! And I'm like, all right, it really is like this. All these movies I watched on show business when I was a kid, they're all true. 1955, 1965, it's all the same. So I was trying to figure out a way how to survive because I wanted to play music forever. That's all I wanted to do is live and play music. Survive in this world without selling out and I was so upset that I was like I'll just write a record about selling out and I'll and I was like I was at that point so cynical you want to sell a record 
What are you telling me? I have to make music to sell their record? Why don't you just put me with like girls with big boobs? That's what the rap guys do. It's easy. Like, you know, why kid around? And they still had a little bit indie, like, what about the cred? It was like, cred is gone. I mean, my cred is completely gone. You know, I used to be in Seconds Magazine, and now you guys are shoving me in the metal ghetto. You know, here you go. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to walk into the metal ghetto with a giant flaming guitar over my head, basically giving the finger to everybody and see if they get the joke. Well, the record sold like crazy, but nobody got the joke. They thought I was serious. And I was like, I can't wear these leather pants forever. My thighs are getting big. <laughs> you know, and so, so I dug myself, like, at one, at, 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 in one point, like, we made that great. And the other point, I was like, on the other hand, I was like, where am I going to go from here? I mean, it's like, you're marching off to Walken, the Walken Festival for the rest of your life. I guess that kind of fits in with um, the last A&M records, like 2001, I guess, something like that. And then you have been making indie records ever since, so it's kind of like what yeah. we're talking about. So yes. kind of talk about just, you know, it's a, it's a commitment of your life to music. It's not like, Absolutely. I mean, we, we all talk about this stuff, but, you know, at a certain point when you're walking away from, from a much more comfortable situation to to really putting yourself out on a limb and having to put out records in Europe and just talk about the decision making but also how you because there's a freedom that comes with it too yeah definitely I mean once you exhale once I exhaled and was like all right a lot of this got I got let off the hook because of the nature of what the future of the business was looking like to me back then um, I had to it took me a little while to get actually had to maneuver to get dropped you know or to get dropped on time you know in, in order for me to still be a human and have some like brown hair on my head at that point you know um, <clears throat> but you could see by the by what was going on with Napster and digital music and how the record companies like totally dropped the ball on all this stuff they weren't gonna see the future they were denying it and I was like the only way to survive even if even if times were good for Monster Man and we were still like really super super successful, would be to go as indie as possible and just kind of weather whatever storm is going to come out. So I just worked really hard to, to veer left when the heat was coming in from the right, veer right when the heat was coming in from the left. Because again, all I was really interested in was like maintaining a lifestyle of music. Because I can't do anything else. It's like, I'll be working at the gas station. Well, you know, it's, um, and you've done at least a half dozen albums like this, right? Five, six. Yeah, yeah, like it's still going. It's amazing. And, like, I'm like an author now, you know? I was like, I've got a bunch of records. I never could see myself um, writing more than three songs, let alone as many. And that's because I had to. If I didn't have to, if, like, we would have done, like, really, really well, you know, I would have been out there like every other schmuck, like hiring Desmond Child, or, could you write this album? You know, I'll just sing it, and then it'll be good, and I'll go get laid, and it'll be great. And it's like, I literally had to, like, continue to do this, and force it to pull it out of my ass in some way. So it's good. I mean, I, I think it worked out the way it should have. Well, I mean, I think it does come full circle. I mean, you put out this album, this latest record, it's called Mindfucker. Now, 
clearly you're not going for the industry gold with that one. Yeah, yeah our, our unashamed yeah. grasp at mass yeah. audience. Exactly, yeah. Can we get your mind fuckers, kids? Yeah, I mean, at this point, I, I would feel I'd be remiss in not titling a record mindfucker in my life. You know, I'd be on my deathbed going, what do you, and somebody would go, what are your regrets? I never called that record mindfucker. I should have. Do you know how much fun it is to say that when someone says like, so I noticed you're playing. What's your, what's your uh, new record's name? Mindfucker. Yeah, really? And I figured it was a perfect year for it too with Trump and everything. I mean, stupid is the new smart. You know what I mean? Whether they get it or not, I'll, I'll stand by it. It's the best year, you know, the best year to call an album Mindfucker ever. Um, I wanted to talk to you about, an interesting thing about your music and is, uh, well, you know, I think we all like this kind of druggy rock thing. That we're, Drug rock! So we're tapped into, but it's so irresponsible, clearly, it's so funny. clearly music has changed for the better. Oh, we lost that one. Our, our school-free drug zone T-shirt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just spilled water on my crotch. <laughs> All right, you don't mind if I, I cross my legs, baby? Yeah, exactly. Um, but so I guess, what's your view on drugs? Because at this point, because. <laughs> Because drugs worked for a while in the music, but the drugs changed, too. Yeah, right? no, you so, know something. So I, when people say drugs, they're not talking about the, the cool drugs. That, no, they're not going. There's <laughs> nobody. Cool. I don't All think, those cool drugs, kids. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no mind expansion going on right now in, in our society. No, I, would, I think the kind of drugs, I mean, the, the drugs that are, are legal are, you know, they're, they're not to open your mind. They're to close your mind, you know, to protect you from... You know, from fear and anxiety and all that stuff. Um, no, you know, it's a funny thing. It's like even when, during the, the early days of Monster Man, I was just singing about my experiences as a teenager. I had already given up drugs. And this was just a cynical, just, I, the height, I thought it was the height of hilarity for a straight guy to go like, drug rock. But I thought that everyone would get it. I thought that people would understand that that was horribly irresponsible and really, really funny to say it's a satanic drug rock thing you wouldn't understand it's like you can't possibly take me seriously right they did i had people like giving me giant bags of drugs in europe and stuff i had people with uh, uh pentagrams on their back like yeah you know like anton lavey style but i'll still stand for the fact that there's something just liberating about the idea of filling your mind with chemicals and just screaming into a microphone, uh, you know, at God or whoever. <laughs> it's just, it just that idea turned me on when I was a kid. It still turns me on, um, but it's really hard to explain. And sure, it's impossible to defend. Impossible. I can't defend it. You can't. You can't defend uh, school-free drug zone. Yeah, <laughs> school. School free drug zone. Like, and then, you know, A&M Records, God bless them. They're like, yeah, we'll, we'll handle that. Can you imagine that today? Somebody, imagine that meeting. Yeah. They're like, okay. Good marketing point. Yeah. Go. Um, we're going to take some questions from the audience uh, in a moment, but I had one last kind of 
question, and maybe, I don't know if it's a depressing question, but it's going to ask you about what do you think the future of rock is, or the future of music, or however you want to take that? Well, you know, just pretend I'm Henny Youngman, and it's 1952. You know, look what happened to vaudeville. Look what happened to jazz. Did it go away completely? No. Maury Amsterdam got a job on the, on the Dick Van Dyke show. But, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it's such a media thing. Rock and roll always was, you know, rock and roll was, in a large part, a product of the media or was enabled by the media. And, more importantly, a huge amount of kids. You know, in 1965, the, the, the population of under 19 people was 48%. 48% of every American was under 19. That's baby boom stuff. That's why rock happened. And because a bunch of people who sold things were like, oh my God, this is like a boom. Like, we have to let these kids do what they want. We have to just sell it to them. That's going away. There's a lot less kids now. So... That means the, that the rock is in the hands of people who are way too old to be doing this stuff. And it doesn't work when the kids aren't all right. It doesn't work. I mean, it works for you and me. I mean, I got told. So I don't know what's going to happen. Just like you, I saw an interview with you where you, you know, you were talking about hardcore and. Uh, the resurgence of hardcore, and you're like, yeah, but at one point, I just wanted to say to that kid, well, get your own fucking music. And I keep waiting, you know, I keep waiting for, like, some kid to come out and go, I got it! And it's not, you know, a couple of sample beats, you know, it's not some techno genius. It's something that reflects some part of reality. It doesn't have to be performed as real. It doesn't have to be so narcissistic that it's like, this is me. But something reflects more than one person's opinion, like a group, a, a scene, like you're saying, zeitgeist. Zeitgeist is hard to define nowadays. Because the zeitgeist changes depending on... It can't really just be a general mindset because you're all reading the computer. It's like... More yeah, like Salem, which yeah dude, this is like stuff. I mean, when you start talking about, you know, seriously talking about concept of post-truth, I mean, that's way beyond rock and roll. Like, post-truth! You know? um, so, the kids are going to have to either be smarter or say they're smarter or think they're smarter or just behave it. I mean, that's a big part of what made rock and roll so great. It was a bunch of kids who didn't know anything, who thought they knew everything. We got it! And it's like, of course they didn't have it, but the glory of it was that they didn't, and they did it anyway. So, music, music will go on. All kinds of cool music, whatever. But to see what, what you and I saw, I don't know how that's going to work out. And I'll probably have something ancillary to it. You know, it won't be just music. It'll be, here's my music and my writing, and here, and I'll also serve coffee. You know, something attached to it, you know. something. But I also do this, and and it's like, uh, just, I, I like it 150%. I always like when people give 150% to it. Like, play it broad, play it beat, like, beat it into me. Um, I suppose metal does that, but 
metal's not my cup of tea because there's not enough melody in it. So I'm stuck in the fourth dimension once again. On that note, I'd uh, like, help to, me. <laughs> like to help, help you. Me. So, um, Spilling we have water a few questions system. from the audience. Um, let's go to our co-host with the most, uh, Mr. Tony Mann. All right. Okay, so we have a few questions for Dave from the internet. Yeah, Tony, man. All right. He doesn't have that. That, that hair is like flying the freak flag high. I didn't right. see that. Thank you, man. He had it all. Thank you. All, he had it all tied up before. I let know, it all hang out. I didn't know you were packing. Hey, man. Okay. I appreciate that. So uh, here's a question from Marco Maestri Jr. What inspired you to get into music and comics as a kid? Growing up in New Jersey. Um, I think it, 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 that kind of stuff is very solitary. And I was pretty solitary. I mean, for somebody who grew up with, eight, with seven brothers and sisters, wow. um, you can imagine that you know, alone time is really important. You know? It's like the Waltons like, almost. Yeah, it was like growing up in a welfare hotel. You know, I mean, there's one phone on the wall. It was like people fighting over the last green lollipop. So and people stealing fine. your comics and records? Yeah, well, or? no, they didn't steal that, but it, 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 that's what drove me towards it, uh, to have some place where I could go by myself and kind of sort things out and be entertained um, in a solitary fashion rather than, you know, all fight over the same TV show. And that's what brought me to comics and, you know, to movies, but music mostly of all because it, it, cre it, it was, had so many things going for it, you know. It stimulated your imagination and, and sure it had some sort of like weird soothing thing that goes on, you know, when your ears get funny when you listen to music, you just knew like this was important. All right, very good, thank you. So the next question is from Brian Perlis. How has your approach to the music of Monster Magnet changed or been affected by the changes in the music industry in the past 25 years. Ah. Well, probably a two-part answer. One is, you know something, after a while you just run out of ideas. You know, I just think I milked this, I just burped the worm too many times. Um, that has no, nothing to do with the changes in the music industry. You just keep pulling it out. The changes in the industry, though, have changed music subtly because there's kind of less time to bullshit around in the studio. So that would change the music slightly the way it sounds. Um, there's modern uh, techniques such as Pro Tools and Auto-Tune and all this kind of stuff that uh, could allow me to uh, take shortcuts here and there. And I'm always looking for a way, I'm always looking for a good way for a shortcut, but not to the point where it's, where it's uh, you know, it'll inhibit the music or inhibit the naturalness of the music. So, I mean, I just like any other time, you look out, you look at what the landscape is and you figure out what you want to do and how you can get there. So, and as music industry changes, I'll change too. I don't think, it, but to put a point on it, I don't think it changes my content at all. You know? Okay. It's so not like I'm like, I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to get this internet crowd, you know, or, right. or whatever, you know. I'm, I'm going to get these kids with right. the earbuds. Demographic. Yeah, I'm not out there thinking that yeah. there's any way I'm going to walk into someone's house and sell something that 
they don't like. That's not particularly your thing. You're leaving that to the people that are working. No, with I'm you terrible. I'm terrible at social right. media. I'm terrible at all that stuff. It's just like, yeah, if they hear it and they like it, they're going to like it, well, right? Thank you for coming anyway. Because right. <laughs> good answer. And so here's another one. Uh, Joshua's in. I think he's from San Francisco. In terms of your music, can you make a living at this level? If so, at what level? Jeez. <laughs> Next question, please. Yeah, well, whatever, man. No, no, you really can't. No, the well's running dry. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, as we speak right now, my bank account is so low. In fact, my business manager's here tonight, and he's, and he's such a nice guy, and there's tears in his eyes. Um, yeah, no, it's I play it fast and loose. There's nothing. It's tough. It's tough to do it your way without making some sort of uh, modification. Um, where will all end? I don't know. But I keep fighting. You know? All right. Very good. It's well worth the fight. Absolutely. Let's hear it. Right on. Right on. Okay, this is from our friend uh, Brian Machutin. If you could record play with any living musician, who would it be? That's a horrible question. <laughs> well, he's a horrible person, but we Every, still like him. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Hi, Brian. Uh, uh, why you? Uh, uh, how do you answer a question like that? I don't know. Throw it out. Can I pick Snoop a dead dog. one? I, I want to pick whatever. a dead guy. Pick a dead uh, guy. Jimmy Hendrix. Uh, All right. Uh, Jimmy Hendrix. Uh, yeah, I mean, every, I, I can't even begin to think. I, I'm gonna, I'll change my mind on the ride home, and then I'll be, you know. Right off the top of your head right now, what would you say? Anybody? Uh, I don't have it. <laughs> Sorry, man. I, I can't act. Don't, you don't have I'm to not good it. with lists or That's points. All right. That's all right. All right. I got to go. This question is from uh, Joe Hogan, who's uh, from tonight's band Snake Canyon. Okay? Right on. Yeah, let's hear it, Joe Hogan. <laughs> So, Dave, the new record, Mindfucker, is yes. it still a satanic drug thing? It is. Yeah, there you go. You got your answer right there. It's it fucking is, He wasn't man. skating on that one. He came when right I, out. When I'm in a hotel and I'm on that 17th floor in Berlin and I got a little time to myself, I go in there and I lay those chicken guts out on the bed. Uh-huh. And I pray to the big guy down below for a good show. It's going to get me what I want. He hasn't let me down. I hope you're happy with that answer, Joe. And anyone who asks these questions... Hail Satan, everybody. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Whoever He's asks these back, questions, the you are going to win a signed copy of Mindfucker. So get with me after and get me your address and we'll get it to you. So thank you for the questions. Thank you for participating in this. Woo! Let's everybody was here for Dave Windorf. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody, for coming. You guys are great. Right, great interview, Stephen and Dave. Huzzah. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Let's hear it again for Dave Windorf. <laughs> support Monster Magnet. Support live music and new music. That's where it's at. Thank you, everyone here at Coney Allen, baby. So, great interview, Stephen. Uh, let's hear it again for Dave. Yeah. That brings us to the end of our show. We hope you've enjoyed Dave Windorf. Next episode, we have a great guest, the photographer Bob Gruen. So, don't miss that. And make sure to email RSVP so you can get in. 
And uh, it was free to get in, so please support the bar, the bartenders. All right? Okay, so we'll see you next time. I'm Stephen Blush. I'm Tony Mann. And you've seen the art, art of, of the, the interview. interview. Yes.